Please turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 12. We'll be finishing 2 Corinthians chapter 12 today. The last three verses of this chapter, we'll be looking at verses 19 to 21. I'll read it for us again. 2 Corinthians 12, 19, it says, All this time you have been thinking that we are defending ourselves to you. Actually, it is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ, and all for your upbuilding, beloved. For I am afraid that perhaps when I come, I may find you to be not what I wish, and may be found by you to be not what you wish, that perhaps there will be strife, jealousy, angry tempers, disputes, slanders, gossip, arrogance, disturbances, I am afraid that when I come again, my God may humiliate me before you, and I may mourn over many of those who have sinned in the past and not repented of the impurity, immorality, and sensuality which they have practiced. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much again for this day that you've made. We thank you for your word that you've spoken to us and preserved your word, and it's so convenient for us to to come to you this way. You've made it so simple, so much more than we deserve. God, we ask that today we would heed your every word and that you would draw us nearer to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask together that I would not get in the way of your text this morning, but that you would anoint me to preach and that your word would be clear to your people, that we would all grow in Christ-likeness together. And we ask for this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, churches can be spoiled. Did you know that? Um, Now, I don't necessarily mean in the um, privileged way. You know, when we privilege our children, we say that they're spoiled brats, right? That comes out of our mouths sometimes. And I think there, uh, of course, is a link between the privileges and ease and the comforts that you have and becoming spoiled. But churches can be spoiled, and in fact, um, churches have smells, and sometimes you can go into a fellowship and you can smell that a church has spoiled. Our former pastor, Lee Whitworth, would use that illustration all the time about the smell. And sometimes whenever I just like bring that up to people, they get confused, like, are you talking about a literal smell, or uh, churches can literally stink, or uh, what's the deal there? Well, not literally in that sense, but Don't get me wrong, churches have smells. A church can smell like beautiful lilacs, and a church can smell like old spoiled milk, too. And you'll smell the church, you'll discover what kind of smell the church has when you interact with the church. The church is, of course, the people. When you interact with the people, when you're in the fellowship, you'll discover the smell of the church. The Corinthian church had a smell. If you were paying attention there to what I read in verses 20 and 21, Paul's not just describing their actions, he's describing their smell. Their church as a whole had started to stink, or to use a different analogy, their hearts had gone cold, you could say, and they were indulging themselves in many sins. Well, Paul was hitched to this stinky church. This is a church that was planted by Paul. Paul was their apostle. Paul was committed to their success. He was hitched to them in a way. And now he's in the position with this 
terribly stinky church to try to salvage what remains of relationship, to try to turn around what can be turned around with this church, to try to lead them in the truth. Look again with me at verse 19. At the end of this letter, the apostle writes, All this time you've been thinking that we are defending ourselves to you. Actually, it is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and for all, or, and all for, rather, your upbuilding or edification, beloved. Paul wants to make clear at the start of this passage, as he wraps up his letter, that the letter he's been writing hasn't been about self-defense. Paul's, of course, defended himself a lot. We just got done with his fool's speech, where he was talking about all the things he suffered for Jesus where he was setting himself in contrast to the false apostles who seek to avoid suffering. Paul was listing off all of his suffering. And for those reading the, the letter, they could say, well, Paul's just like on the defensive here. He's defending himself. He wants us to think really highly of him. And Paul says here at the end, though it may come across that way, we want you to know here that we have been speaking in the sight of God in Christ and all for your edification commentator David Garland put it this way, Paul has committed no offense and need not exonerate himself. Besides that, they are not his judges. It is God, not they, he must please. He is therefore speaking before God, not them. Paul wasn't interested in an apologetic or a defense for his own honor. Paul wasn't mainly interested in winning people over to his personality or to him. But he was offering an apologetic through this letter for God's sake, for the sake of his master, Jesus Christ. His goal through this letter and all these ways he's described his ministry and in the eyes of the Corinthians defended himself, all of that was toward the goal of the Corinthians seeing God's work through him and through his missionary team, that they would see God at work in their lives, that they would see God's truth in them that they would embrace the goodness of their instruction over and against the false instruction of the false apostles. Paul's goal was for the Corinthians to be renewed through their pure devotion to Christ, apart from the worldly politics that other people were playing in the church. The people in the church who would say, I'm of Peter, or I'm of Barnabas, or I'm of Apollos. Paul's setting himself up in contrast to that, that they would see God's love, God's goodness, God's humility in them. And in turn, that would build up this church. The end of verse 19, it says, this is all for your upbuilding. Your translation may say, all for your edification. That's a fair translation. It was all for their edification as they would embrace God by embracing the apostle and his missionary team, as God vindicated Paul and his missionary companions in their hearts. I think we could say, as we look at verse 19 and we get into the end of this letter, I think we could say that Paul desired for this church to be right with God more than he desired this church to be made right with him. And that's a really selfless position to take, isn't it? From a worldly perspective, Paul had a lot to lose. If there was a whole church in a prominent city in Greece that was against him, he had a lot to lose, didn't he, as an apostle? But you don't see Paul here saying, I must hold on to my reputation so I can do more things. 
Paul's ultimate desire would be that he had a clear conscience before God, that the Corinthian church had a clear conscience before God, and that they would be made right with God whether or not they were ultimately made right with him. Very, very selfless. Because their view of Paul and his team had been spoiled by bad actors and by their own pride. It really did lead to a rift between that church and God himself. Now, I want to bring this close to home. I want to bring this closer to home because we can examine this passage and we can see, okay, you've got an apostle in the first century, you've got a church in the first century, they're mad at each other, rah, 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 and Paul here is like trying to make it right and he's trying to be selfless and humble while he's doing it, okay? And all that's true. But don't you know that this kind of stuff still goes on in churches today? Don't you know that it happens with, that people can be led astray by their pride and by bad actors, and that there can be separation and disunity in the church, and that this passage that goes through to list these sins in verse 20 is still extremely relevant to us today? I hope you recognize that. I hope you see that. And so I want to uh, read to you a, a bit of a story inspired by true events that I read about, not events that have happened to me, not events that have happened here. I read about them in a church far, far away. Okay. <laughs> One Sunday morning, a pastor was making his way toward his seat in preparation for the start of the service. As he made his way, one member said, Good morning, pastor, only to be ignored. Puzzled and offended, the member was approached by a couple that was standing nearby who had witnessed the ordeal. This was their last Sunday as they were upset with the direction that the pastor was leading the church and desired to go to a church where they were more respected. Isn't that terrible, the wife said to the offended member. It's like he never has time for the people, the husband added. The member had some uneasiness with the church's direction too that he had kept to himself up to this point, and this event seemed to push him over the edge. Though he remained at the church, he carried with him a bitterness toward this pastor. There were times when the bitterness manifested itself by unnecessary opposition in church business meetings and by willingly refraining from giving. Two years after the initial event, the pastor happened to mention in a sermon illustration that he is totally deaf in his right ear, the same ear the member spoke toward. All at once, on that Sunday morning, this member was overcome with the realization that he had let his feelings get out of hand, and he had done so with bad intel. His misunderstanding was fueled by pride and amplified by bad actors, leading to a senseless faction that affected the very unity of the church. We all, if we've been in church for any amount of time, know of stories like that one, don't we? We know of factions that have come up in churches because of misunderstandings, because of pride, because of bad actors. And that's exactly what's going on in Corinth. They have an opinion of Paul that's influenced by their own pride. They have an opinion of his missionary team that's influenced by false apostles, bad actors in the church. And there were many people with many vices who were fueling the fire of faction at the church in Corinth. In fact, I think if this church, this church in Corinth, were to have one of those trendy church names like we see today, they could have been called Disease Church. You see cool church names out there, don't you? You know, like Blank Church. They would be diseased church because they had a disease. And he describes that disease starting in verse 20. Look with me again at verse 20. Paul says, For I am afraid that perhaps when I come, I may find you to be not what I wish and may be found by you not to be what you wish, and that perhaps there will be, here it is, 
These are the symptoms. Strife, jealousy, angry tempers, disputes, slanders, gossip, arrogance, disturbances. What a disease. We learn from this passage that it's possible for a church to be diseased. It's possible for a local body of believers to be reabsorbed into carnality. For a local church to act sinfully. For a local church to focus on the flesh. Spirit-indwelt believers may cease to fight sin and live by the flesh and walk by the flesh, qualifying themselves for God's discipline, which is right where Paul goes in the next chapter, the final chapter of this letter. There's also the reality that there are unbelievers who might be in the fellowship who pull the wheat of God toward the tareness of the devil, if I could use the wheat and the tare analogy parable that way. It's very, very sad to see a church that gets diseased and full of worldly division and prideful factions. <clears throat> you know, I had the, uh, the blessing of going to a uh, small country school. When I tell people sometimes that my graduating class was 38, it's surprising to some. And then when I tell them that kindergarten through 12th grade was all in the same building, it's like, whoa, are you serious? <clears throat> Never had to leave the, the premises. I went to kindergarten through graduation, same property. Public school, just farm territory in Missouri. And one thing I would see over and over again that I never had to go through, but I saw it year by year, were the new kids who would come to school. Maybe, you know, their parents were in the military or whatever the case may be. They would have to travel around a lot. And a lot of times you would find kids who had, had gone to many new schools because their parents just weren't ever stable in one place. And when a child, especially as you get into middle school, high school years, when they have to go to a new school, that's really difficult, isn't it? Because you walk into a new school and you encounter cliques, you encounter all kinds of politics, though you don't even know that's the word for it. There's gossip, there's hatred, there's jealousy. People are just flat out mean. And I, I never had to go through that, but now, especially in adulthood, looking back, I think about how difficult that must have been for so many. Well, imagine if you were to walk in on a Sunday morning, a Sunday morning like this, to that church in Corinth. I wonder if it would be similar to walking into a diseased middle school. A diseased church would probably look a lot like a diseased middle school. By these sins that Paul lists, starting with strife and jealousy, it sure seems similar to that, doesn't it? Paul said that he had fears about this church. Again, look at verse 20. He says, I am afraid. This is that word phobos, where we get our word phobia. He had a phobia here that they would not find each other the way that they wish to find each other. He says, on the one hand, I'm afraid that I may find you to be not what I wish and that you may find me to not be what you wish, that their mission, that their vision wasn't exactly aligned. Paul's saying here, I'm afraid that when I come, you may still be sitting in your mess of sin and that nothing is sorted out, that the false teachers are still ruling. And you may find me not as a warm, jovial, happy-to-see-a-friend, but as a disciplinarian, an apostle who comes with punishment. And this would certainly be the case without repentance on the part of the Corinthians. Go back with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. The book right before this one, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, starting at verse 18, where Paul used 
this similar language here talking about the discipline that he would bring if he found them still indulging in sin. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, starting in verse 18, it says, Now some have become arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I shall find out not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. Look at this, verse 21. What do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? We've talked about how Paul gives them warnings like parents give their children warnings. Clean up your room, we're leaving in 10 minutes. In 10 minutes, how do you want me to come? With a rod or with a spirit of gentleness? Paul's giving them a warning and he's saying, if he comes, he will have to enact the discipline of God. If the false teachers still lingered in the church, if sin was still tolerated in the church, if they were not participating in the fundraising effort, remember, that's easy to get lost in all of this. There's a fundraising effort going on where Paul's seeking to raise funds from them to send to Jerusalem that they said they would. If they fail on these fronts, Paul is going to have to come as an apostle with discipline. And he says another fear in verse 21, that if that's the case, that God may humiliate me before you, he says. He says, I'm afraid that I may turn into a puddle, mourning over your sin. He reminded us back at the end of chapter 11, 2 Corinthians eleven twenty nine. look with me there to that verse. Paul says, who is weak without my being weak? And who is led into sin without my intense concern? Paul had intense concern over their sin. And he says in verse 21 that he would mourn. He would mourn over those who have sinned but have not repented. He doesn't say he'll yell. He doesn't say he'll throw furniture. He doesn't say he'll write a bad Google review. Paul says, I'll mourn over your sin. And that's the only appropriate Christian response to sin, isn't it? Other emotions may follow, but first we must mourn because this is the reason why Jesus died. It's for sin. Holiness was his concern. Holiness of churches was his ultimate concern. And he deeply desired success and purity for the churches that he planted. Not just success in numbers, not success in show, but success in holiness and purity. Consider Philippians chapter 4, verse 1, where Paul wrote to that church and he says, My beloved brethren, whom I long to see, My joy and crown, in this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. He considered one of the churches that he planted, and I would say all the churches he planted, to be his crown, his joy and his crown. And again, to this church, to the Corinthian church, chapter 11, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 2, it says, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. This is that eschatological view, the end times view of when they're all together, Paul would present this church to Jesus. He's the one, he's the apostle that God used to start this church, and that if they run well at the end, he would have the privilege of offering his crown, casting his crown in that sense, before the feet of his Savior, Jesus Christ. Back in chapter 7 of 2 Corinthians, verse 1, Paul says, "...having these promises, beloved..." 
Let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. His ultimate concern was purity for the church. Everything else was secondary. He wanted the church to be a holy church that reflected the very character of God. And the substance of his concern with this particular church is found in two lists that we get in 20 and 21. Verse 20 has a list of eight sins, and verse 21 has a list of three sins. And these first eight sins, along with the other three, are all really deeds of the flesh. If you remember in Galatians chapter 5 that talks about the fruit of the Spirit, before Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit, he lists the deeds of the flesh, the fruit of the flesh. And this Corinthian church must have just like, if they had that letter, they read the wrong list because they were doing the deeds of the flesh and were missing out on so much of the fruit of the Spirit. These are all symptoms of the disease of pride. And the first eight that we find all in verse 20 have to do with interpersonal relationships in the church. He starts by saying that he's afraid he will find strife and jealousy. These are two words that are natural bedfellows. Where you find one, you'll find the other. You won't have strife without jealousy. You won't have jealousy without strife. The two words absolutely go together. The word for strife is a word used in the New Testament nine times by Paul. Seven times, it's right there with the word jealousy or the word envy. Seven of nine times, Paul paired these words together because they so naturally go together. These words have to do with success in contention. They have to do with competition and seeking to win. That word for strife in particular has to do with competing with one another. You know that in the church, it's possible for Christians to compete with one another. That instead of looking at one another as brothers and sisters in the Lord, instead of looking at one another as family, instead of looking at one another as people you want the very best for, it's possible for believers to start seeking to devour one another. See how gross this is? Yes is the appropriate response, okay? Yes. It's very, very gross. Seeking to devour one another, competing with one another. And so often, here's a point of application for you, so often we have that with people who are the most like us. There aren't many concert pianists out there who are jealous of insurance salesmen. But you'll find concert pianists who are jealous of other concert pianists, and you'll find insurance salesmen who are jealous of other insurance salesmen because they're alike. They share a lot of the same experiences and a lot of the same values, and they can see tangibly what they could be if only the situations were reversed. So in the church, when we think about strife, we need to think about those relationships that we hold dear, where we can become jealous and envious of people who are the most like us. Heaven forbid that in the church there would be moms competing with moms, or that there would be any servant in the church competing with another servant. Strife and jealousy is a nasty symptom of the disease of pride. Jealousy, of course, is at the root. It's selfishness. It's coveting what God has given another. It's looking at someone else's circumstances and saying, God should have given that to me. It's wanting to play God. It's fighting back against God. 
And what so naturally follows from strife and jealousy is what's third in the list, angry tempers. Tempers. This has to do with impassioned rage, that face-flushing anger that we've felt from time to time in our lives when the emotions have just totally taken over. It's when we lose a, all sense of maturity, all sense of control over how we feel. You know what it's like when you've got a little toddler sitting there bumped up with his diaper and he's playing with his toy, and then some other little toddler comes by and just rips it right out of his hands? That's angry temper. And you don't have to be a toddler to have angry tempers. We can all replicate that from time to time, can't we? From there, he goes on to list this unholy trinity of bad relationships, disputes, slanders, and gossip. Instead of gossip, yours might say whisperings, which is actually a more literal translation of the word, to whisper. Disputes, slanders, and gossip. Conflicts in the church, competition in the church, contention in the church, leading to whispering about one another. So, so terrible. There's a reason why when we introduce new members uh, in our church service that we lead them before the congregation, before our core values, and ask for alignment with each of our five core values. And then we add a sixth, which is, do you commit to refraining from gossip in the body? Because gossip in the church is terrible, isn't it? Whispering in the church, talking about people in an unfavorable way in order to diminish their character before someone else behind their back. When personal offense leads to a defamation campaign, you can be sure you've got on your hands a diseased church. People recruiting to get their way and forming factions behind one another's backs. We know, of course, that was going on in Corinth when they formed their teams. I'm of Paul, I'm of Christ. Disputes, slanders, gossip. I've heard of some pastors who have walked into situations like that when they took on a new church and they had no idea that the church was that way. And their 10 years were less than six months, some even less than three months, because they just couldn't handle the disease. And the tongue continues to fuel that fire of contention. The tongue fuels those disputes so that they never cease, but it just keeps raging on and on. Consider Proverbs 26, verses 20 and 21. It says, For lack of wood, the fire goes out, and where there is no whisperer, contention quiets down. What a good verse. 21, Like charcoal to hot embers and wood to fire, so is a contentious man to strife. Contention and gossiping go hand in hand. And an extended passage of Scripture from James chapter 3, verses 5 to 10, that apostle wrote, So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. The tongue is a deadly poison. That's, that's a worse term than disease, isn't it? Deadly poison. 
That's even worse. From there, he lists in our verse 20 list of sins here, arrogance. Arrogance is essentially the opposite of meekness. It's the opposite of humility. If you think of meekness as strength under control, well, arrogance is just weakness that's out of control. Arrogance is is weakness or foolishness or ignorance that inflates someone's ego and is totally out of control. It's someone who's puffed up with the pride of their own heart. And that, of course, leads to the final sin in the list, which is disturbances. A disturbance is disorder, it's instability. And in this context, thinking of someone in the local church being this way, you can think of it as a very well-timed wrench that someone throws into someone else's plans. A good person in the church has plans to bring people back toward truth, back toward humility. Well, the person of strife and jealousy with the temper, the gossiper, the arrogant one, is going to throw a wrench into such a plan, isn't he? All of this refers to creating rifts in the fellowship due to perceived lack of respect. It comes from pride. It comes from pride. Pride's not listed here, but don't you know it's the first sin? As one of the church fathers said, pride is the mother that's pregnant with all sin. And we see her children here listed, don't we? Strife, jealousy, tempers, disputes, slander, gossip, arrogance, disturbances. They all flow into one another. It creates a chain of following the flesh and really following false teachers. This is the way false teachers live. It corrupts a church and it causes a church to be totally diseased with sin. Consider what Paul said in his first letter to the Corinthians. This is 1 Corinthians 3, starting at verse 1. Look at how he, how he phrases things here. Paul says, "...and I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not yet able, for you are still fleshly. For since there is a jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly, and are you not walking like mere men?" For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? Both letters, Paul has really struggled with the sinfulness of the Corinthians. But it's just walking by the flesh, doing the deeds of the flesh. That's what it boils down to, is sin stemming from pride. Well, in addition to those eight, verse 21 has three more. You see those words, impurity, immorality, and sensuality. These are three categories. They're much broader than the eight that we listed about specific actions. These are three broad categories, but they all generally point to sexual sin, which is particularly interesting, thinking that a church would struggle so much that Paul would put it in a letter like this with impurity, immorality, and sensuality. Impurity refers to soiling yourself. It refers to making yourself dirty, to taking back the purity that God had given you, to take back the pure commands that the Lord Jesus has given the church to walk in purity, and to soil yourself with the world's thinking, to soil yourself with the world's tactics, to embrace the world's pleasures and perversions of sexual relationships. Immorality is that big general term that we still use today in many cases. It's the word porneia, where we get our word pornography. This is sexual immorality, sexual sin that defiles a person's own body. All the various twists that the world can have on God's good gift 
fall into this category of immorality. And the third word, sensuality, speaks to living to gratify our, our fleshly impulses, to have no restrictor in the way that we live, but we have these impulses coming from the flesh that cause us to act impulsively. Licentious behavior, that anything goes. In fact, you could say that sensuality, when it's put in these terms, in this context, means to live like an animal. It's to basically reduce yourself to a wild beast who just does whatever he desires. Well, I don't think these three sins of sexual sin, I don't think these, are, these terms are here randomly. I don't think they're totally disconnected from the verse that follows, or precedes rather. But instead, I see there being a connection between these three sexual sins or these categories of sexual sin in verse 21 and the eight sins that were listed before. One way that you can think about it is that personal purity, holiness in the realm of our sexual relationships, that must be established before there's going to be church purity. You can't have a church that's holy if all the individual members are indulging in sin. Our church is made up of members. We are a body of many members, and we must, on an individual basis and together, but on an individual basis, we must, of course, be right with the Lord, and we must pursue holiness on an individual level, which leads to us pursuing holiness together on a corporate level. And I would say this, too, that if you're using someone in the bedroom, you'll use anyone anywhere. If you are indulging yourself in sins like impurity, immorality, and sensuality, it's not that big of a deal to be jealous of others, to gossip about others, or to use them in other ways. I think these lists are next to each other for a reason, and pride will rear its head everywhere it goes. Well, these problems in the church were to be addressed through repentance. Look down here at verse 21 with me again. Verse 21 Paul says that he would mourn if he found people still in their sins without repentance. Repentance is an essential element of the Christian life. It's the first of Martin Luther's 95 theses that all of a Christian's life is one of repentance. It's something that we do ongoing. Of course, we do it at the beginning. It's what's it's what happens at the beginning when we first believe. Faith and repentance go together. It is what happens when we believe in the gospel. There's a repentance there. But it doesn't stop. Day by day, each one of us is to consider how it is God would have us to change our mind and to change the way that we're living. It has absolute centrality in the Christian life, repentance does. Consider Jesus' words in Luke 24. This is the very end of Luke's gospel. Luke 24, starting with verse 46, Jesus said to them, "'Thus it is written, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer.'" and rise again from the dead the third day, verse 47, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in His name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Jesus declared that the plan here is that the disciples would go out to all the world and declare repentance for forgiveness of sins. Even in Paul's own words, as he summarized his ministry toward the end of his life in Acts chapter 26, Starting in verse 19, he said to King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, but kept declaring both 
to those of Damascus first, and also at Jerusalem, and then throughout all the region of Judea, and even to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. That's how Paul summarized his ministry, that he went out with the message of repentance to turn and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice that Paul says in our text today, in verse 21, that those who need to repent are those who have sinned in the past. These are issues that have lingered in Corinth. These are issues that he knew of that happened some time ago that people had not repented of, but they were still indulging in the behaviors or they just never owned up to them in the first place. Paul had been speaking to them about this in his first letter. And I want to take you there. This is the last time we'll leave 2 Corinthians, but go back with me to 1 Corinthians one more time, the book right before. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting at verse 13. Look at how this has been an issue that's been going on in the Corinthian church for some time, as Paul says, it's taken place in the past. 1 Corinthians 6, starting at verse 13. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through His power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body. But the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Paul here is saying, I'm afraid you didn't hear me the first time. And when I come, maybe you hadn't heard me the second time either. He is urging them to repent, calling them to repentance. Because here's the thing about sexual sin and really any sin, these things don't just dissolve on their own. They don't just fade away. Sometimes that's how we want to handle sin in our lives, isn't it? When we don't want to address it head on, when we don't want to truly repent, when we don't want accountability, when we don't want change, we think, well, if we just leave it alone, it'll go away. That's not how sin works. That's just not how it works. Sin lingers. It has to be addressed head on. There's a reason why, again, thinking to James's epistle, there's a reason why he calls us to confess our sins to one another. Because these things do not go away on their own. Perhaps they would be reading this letter, the Corinthians, and say, Paul, you say right there, you say it's in the past. Let the past be the past. Don't you know the past catches up with you? And history repeats itself? Paul is saying repentance is still necessary. And I think this is the obvious application for us today as we consider these three passages. As we think about who we are as the body of Christ, who are we? Well, we are blood-bought saints belonging to God. We've been adopted by God through Jesus Christ to be sons and daughters of the Most High forever and ever. It's helpful to start with our identity, isn't it? That's really pleasant to think about. 
And that should give you peace and hope and joy and assurance and certainty. It should give you all of those things. But don't we know that there are times when we do not act in accordance with our identity? There are times in which we behave against our identity? That instead of being holy and blameless before Him as we are spiritually in our position, that we live in a way that's wicked, that we live in a way that's evil, where we acquire guilt for ourselves because of the way we've rejected the Word of God. What is the solution? How do we come back and and bridge these things? How do we find, again, our identity to be the motivator for our behavior? And how do we change? Well, it starts with repentance, that we go back to God in humility and we ask God for forgiveness for what we have done. And we pursue holiness together. We make a commitment together that purity in this church is a priority. Just as we read, it's a priority for Paul, for these churches that he planted, that we would come together at Orchard Hills Bible Church and make it a priority that we would be pure and holy before our God who has called us out of the world and called us to live for Him. These sins that we read about in this passage as verse, or chapter 12 comes to an end, they are an indictment against that church. They're an indictment against the leadership of that church. We don't even hear of elders or pastors or deacons in that church. I don't know what they had, but whatever leadership they had wasn't leading well. Leadership would need to repent and lead the church in a new direction. We must have, as a church, a priority of personal holiness and corporate unity. If the truth is not going to be held dear, in our church. We won't have a light anymore. You know how Jesus talks to those seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3? I'll come take your lampstand away. I'll come take your lamp away if you do not repent. He urges five of those seven churches that they had to repent of sins that were lingering, and if they wouldn't, their light would burn out. It still happens today. could happen to us. It all depends on what we do with the truth God has given us If we will repent and seek to live pure, holy lives before Him in love, together in unity, or if we will reject the Word of God and indulge the flesh and walk in the deeds of the flesh. We all have to make those decisions individually, and we come together and we make that decision corporately, don't we? Let's pray. Father, You know exactly what we're going through. You know exactly what is happening right now. You are omniscient. You're all-powerful. You're here with us now. God, help us to feel so exposed before You of anything that we need to repent of. Help us to think about our hands and what we've done with our hands and our minds and our hearts. God, help us to be earnest before You. Lead us in repentance and help us, to, help us to understand how it is we are to revere You more and more in the truth and in love. We want to honor You as a body, and we can't hold back. God, thank You so much for our salvation that we have in Jesus, and help us now to be refreshed as we remembered his body broken for us. It's in his name we pray. Amen.